Welcome to The Recast, your podcast recapping events at the Claremont Colleges and casting light on student voice and response. I'm Ruji Yu, your host for today's episode. This week, I had the honor of interviewing Sally Wen Mao, a Pushcart Prize winning poet and educator. We talk about her new collection of poems, Oculus, Asian and Asian American identity, teaching, social media, and representation in film. I hope you enjoy. So hi, Sally. Um, congratulations on your new um, poetry book, Oculus. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, so I was actually wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what you were into as a kid and what, how you think that might have informed your perspectives on Asian and Asian American identity. Great. So um, I was born in Wuhan, China, um, and my parents immigrated to Boston when I was five. Uh, so we moved a lot in that area. So the most vivid recollections I have of Boston are when we lived in Brookline. Um, but then we moved to California maybe when I was nine. So um, I grew up in Mountain View and I went to high school in Cupertino. So I lived in many different places as a kid and um i i would say living in the silicon valley in particular um in cupertino there was uh, my my high school had a lot of asian americans and that did kind of inform me um of asian american identity but Kind of latently, we didn't really study the history. We didn't really study much of the scholarship around it. Um, I do remember when I was in middle school in Mountain View, um, there was kind of this citywide project where they pulled the Chinese American kids out of their classes to, so that they could learn about Chinese American history in California. And I remember thinking back um like why did they pull us out of the class why why didn't everybody learn that history so that that's something that kind of shaped um my thinking when when i was writing this particular manuscript so who do you think that you wrote this manuscript for yeah thank you um i imagine my reader to be well well i i kind of stated explicitly in the book um, that my main audience um, are women and girls like me who kind of grow up feeling invisible in a, in a way. Um, so, so yeah, I, I absolutely think that I was writing toward an audience of Asian American women and girls um, um, and, and, and women of color in, in general who don't see themselves as kind of the norm in, you know, in, in media or, or in other spaces. Mm -hmm. And um, in, the, in the poem Oculus, that shares <laughs> the same title as your book, you, you kind of talk about somebody who documents their death on Instagram. Um, I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit more about what drew you to that story and um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this story, it, I 
I I remember reading about it on the internet. I think I think every day we read stories on the internet. It's become this routine, right, for us to like read articles and um and when I read this story, it was about a woman or a very young woman. I think she was 19 um who who uploaded or documented like you said her her own death on Instagram. I remembered reading that story and then, you know, clicking through the link to her Instagram and just going down this rabbit hole. I was reading every post about her life and then it became this really weird and unhealthy obsession where and and it was also lurid, right? Because you 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 see the way that she presents herself and her life, um, you know, week after week until that moment. And it becomes this strange spectacle. Um, and, and somehow I felt guilty because I was participating in that spectacle. But at the same time, what, who among us, you know, with social media profiles haven't you know, thought about that gaze or that spectacle as we're documenting our own lives. So I, I started writing a poem kind of based on my observations from that. If you don't mind, can you read it for us? Sure, thank you. Oculus. Before I wake, I peruse the dead girl's live photo feed. Days ago, she uploaded her confessions. I can't bear the sorrow, captions her black eyes, gaps across a face, luminescent as snow. I can't bear the snow, how it falls, swells over the bridges, under my clothes, yet I can't be held or be held here. In this barren warren, this din of ruined objects, peepholes into boring scandals, Stockings roll high past hems as I watch the videos of her boyfriend cooing. Behave, darling, so I can make you my wife. How the dead girl fell awaiting, a hand to hold, eyes to behold her. As the lights clicked on and she posed for her picture, long eyelashes all wet, legs tapered, bright as thorns. Her windows overlook Shanghai. Curtains drawn to cast a shadow over the Huampu River, frozen this year into a dry, bloodless stalk. Why does the light in the night promise so much? She wiped her lens before she died. The smudge still lives. I saw it singe the edge of her bed. Soon it swallowed the whole burning city. Thank you. Hearing you read that also like makes me curious about your relationship to social media. If you think, like, could you imagine yourself in this position, like where you're documenting so much of your life, or do you think you're mostly in the position where you're looking at other people's lives? That's a good question. I think, um, I think definitely both. Mm-hmm. Um, it it is strange because I admire people I admire other writers who can be really you know frank and open about their lives on social media 
I don't think I'm at a point where where my social media, you know, like like persona kind of, you know, re like reflects some of my frustrations or my like troubles or my personal life, you know. Um, um, definitely I can document my anger, you know, on, mm -hmm. on Twitter. I feel like Twitter is like this place where you can go and tweet angrily at things. Um, um, and then Instagram is this space where you you're you're documenting maybe the the prettier aspects of your life mm -hmm. um and so I do think that I participate in it but you know perversely I really I hope that there is you know there, there, there there's a possibility that social media can fulfill what it's supposedly for right which mm -hmm. is which is to kind of connect people mm -hmm. and and to and to i guess be this medium for 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 people to really see each other as mm -hmm. humans yeah. but i think that's a little bit too optimistic maybe not <laughs> but also i know you teach and mm -hmm. you've taught at cornell and even in singapore at Nas national university of singapore so i was wondering like do you feel that there is a generational gap between you and your students with regards to social media usage? I I don't know because, I mean, I guess at this point, um, I was just reading an article just now about Generation Z, right? <laughs> so um, I, think, I think for me it's, it's weird because when I first started teaching, I... Um, my students were millennials just like me you know <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. and and i and 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 i had to kind of grapple with the fact that i i i needed to assert some kind of authority um mm -hmm. but now i think i think i think i don't have as much anxiety about that um like lack of generation gap or if there is now a generation gap, I, I don't, I don't sweat it as much. Um, I I do remember there was this one summer when I taught a high school poetry workshop at Stanford, and and then you know I didn't I I refused to let my students like follow me on Instagram, <laughs> but then you know at, on the very last day I was like, you know what, why not? Yeah. <laughs> and I just mm -hmm. you know I accepted all their requests and it's it's kind of nice you know mm -hmm. seeing seeing the way my students document their lives you know mm -hmm. and and I do think that there is a slight difference but you know who knows I also want to go back to your persona poems and mm -hmm. I remember at the um, Scripps Presents Noon event um, someone asked you a really good question about um, why you why you chose to um, speak like in, in the perspective of the people you chose to speak in the perspective from um, most notably Anna Mae Wong but also um, Afong Mei and I think there was a poem where you talked about a Wong Kar Wai film yes and yes. also um, and also Faye Wong and yeah. Um, yeah I just want you to like talk more about that poem because um, in my family, <laughs> my parents really love listening to her um, sing. So yeah. Oh great! Yeah. Um, so uh, I I do have a series of persona poems, um, and and the Wong Kar Wife poem is is based 
it it is a personal poem, st- still from the perspective of Anna Mae Wong, oh. <laughs> and um, and I I think with this poem I was imagining how Anna Mae Wong would react to a to being on the set of a Wong Kar Wai film, mm-hmm. as opposed to you know um, the set of a a Hollywood film, mm-hmm. and uh, and I almost I, I wrote this poem out of wanting to write a different kind of poem um, because so many of the other poems she's in these um, she's in these Hollywood movies that have depicted Asians in you know like negatively right mm-hmm. um, and and I. I remembered when I was in college, I loved Wong Kar Wai films. I used to go into the basement of my library and just, you know, rent the tapes and just watch them in the the little pods. Wow. And mm-hmm. and and I I watched a whole bunch at a time. I remembered I watched like Fallen Angels and Chunking Express and 2046. I watched a lot of the Wong Kar Wai films and I loved them because they were so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, they were you know, they 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 showed me that, you know, Asians can be <laughs> creative yeah. and mm-hmm. weird and just you know, just just strange. There's the scene in Fallen Angels where um Takeshi Kaneshiro is like straddling a dead pig in a butcher. It's 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 really crazy uh-huh. <laughs> and and surreal and I and I loved, you know, seeing that. Um, and it was so rare for me, you know, um, to see that. So I, I wanted to kind of write an ode to to that, to 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 those films, but in but in in this series, this anime Wong series. Yeah, if you don't mind, if you don't mind, can you read it? Oh All sure, right. thank, thank you. you. <laughs> anime Wong dreams of Wong Kar Wai. I know what it is to pretend to be safe in my fulvous skin. So much pretending can bring a girl to her knees. But in Wong Kar Wai's world, no one needs to pretend. The mizzen sen of fallen angels, Hong Kong trance, butchers, storefronts, stolen ice cream trucks. Or 2046, the train of lush cyborgs going forever nowhere. In the Singapore hotel room, Tony Lun writes his alien love stories. Across the world, happy together, Leslie Chun empties his apartment in Buenos Aires, sets for the beautiful and lonely. In Chunking Express, I watch Fei Wong smoke cigarettes between takes in cropped cut, oversized button-down, grain shorts. She doesn't leave her tape deck alone, but complains she is sick of that track, California Dreamin'. The song makes me homesick, nostalgic even, and I know this is absurd because it came out in 1965 after I die. Whatever John Phillips meant by feeling safe in L.A., I can relate. Sometimes I pretend so much I believe myself. On the set, I try on the yellow wig and trench coat that Bridget Lynn wore, smuggling cocaine on the first act. The plot has a hole, 
Why does Bridget wear a blonde wig if she didn't want to arouse suspicion? I have played many criminals, but no one like her, who fell asleep in a hotel room with the police officer gazing at her, in love. If I played her role, I imagine walking through Causeway Bay in 1929, my cigarette lighting my way, the most conspicuous woman in the world. But the role I'd rather play is Faye's tomboy who breaks into her true love's apartment to add goldfish to his fish tank, or agent in Fallen Angels who sets up crime scenes and goes to her assassin's room to touch herself, or Maggie Chun's role in Days of Being Wild. She asks the traitor in her bed, does the empty night fertilize this barren soil? She is ready in pale light, limp with the pain of wakefulness. Far away, the palm trees flare over wet balls. Home is in Macau. The rain readies her for her dim walk home. I've never cared for love stories. I praise a story of heartbreak. I praise how beauty looks stirring a blackout. Thank you. And listening to you read that poem also makes me think about what you would think how Anna Mae Wong would react to the recent developments in like Asian American representation and Asian representation in American film, um, like Crazy Rich Asians that was released um, this past summer and To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which was on Netflix. So yeah, mm -hmm. I was just wondering what your thoughts on those films are. Great. Um, so it, it, it is really interesting, this conversation about Crazy Rich Asians, because a lot of people, you know, like look at that film and it's a pretty much all Asian cast. And that hasn't happened since the 1990s mm -hmm. with the Joy Luck Club. And before that, you know, the, the last film with an all Asian cast before the Joy Luck Club um, came out in the 1960s flower drum song so if you think about it like once every 20 30 years uh -huh. there's mm -hmm. some film in Hollywood with an all Asian cast and my take on it is that it's not enough right yeah. uh, my take mm -hmm. on it is it's not enough to have you know one or two films come out um, with like an Asian lead or an all Asian cast there needs to be more diversity of stories within Asian America um in, in you know if they were to be mainstreamed it's it's not enough to have these tokenized stories mm -hmm. um and i think it's 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 great that you know that it was so successful but I, i'm just hoping that it actually does spark some kind of progression right um mm -hmm. um like flower drum song came out in 1961 and actually anime wong was originally cast in that movie but she got sick and and she, in the end she was she wasn't able to um to to have the role in that film so i i think about tokenism and i think about you know um i think about also spectacle right um crazy rich asians is is very spectacular it has this it, there there's you know there's this 
beautiful, lush wedding happening, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and it's kind of like the Cinderella story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think, but I think for me, I I want to see um, deeper stories, you know, like more complex stories, um, as well as you know those um, stories that have a lot of bravado, like like Crazy Rich Asians. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think I think we're moving toward that, but there just needs to be more momentum than maybe once every 20, 30 years. Yeah. I think that some people, though, might argue that because Asians and Asian Americans make up such a small, like, percentage of the general, like, United States population, um, like, why wouldn't it be enough to have that? Well, I think, well, you know, if you... um, Asians, I think, are also the are, are the fastest growing demographic mm-hmm. of, of the U.S. So even though, you know, even though, you know, the population might be whatever proportion of the overall population in the U.S., you know, our, our demographics are are shifting. They're mm-hmm. changing. And and by, you know, by the year 2046, I mentioned the movie, but by the year 2046, um, I, th- I think the U.S. will be made of more minority people than 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 white people. So the, so so whiteness will no longer be the default or the majority. I think it's not so much the proportion of population that matters, but the but this kind of implication that white is the default mm-hmm. when that's never been the story of America. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because because if you think about it, it's it's people of color who have really built this country mm-hmm. um, literally. Right. Yeah. Like it was mm-hmm. the Chinese immigrants that came and built the railroads mm-hmm. and the infrastructure of of the U.S. And, and, and it was the Native Americans who were here first. So mm-hmm. if you think about so if you think about the the narratives that Hollywood is feeding um you know, young people, that 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 the default story is always going to be the white story. That that's a false narrative, right? Mm-hmm. So so for me, I think it's more about the narrative, and it's more about you know what, how can we dismantle these harmful and false tropes that that are already circulating in our culture, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Thank you. And I was also wondering, like, um, this sort of idea of Asians being very white adjacent, or like, I think um, Wesley Yang sort of mentions how Asian males are like the most highly educational um, social group in the United States. And Jenny Zhang talks about how she's like consciously trying to give make way for um, African-Americans and other people of color to share their stories. So I was also just wondering um, how you felt about white adjacency and Asian-Americanness. Yeah, so so I think I think white adjacency also the is like a synonym for for the model minority myth, mm-hmm. right, where where Asian-Americans are believed to be the the, you know, the the good minority or the minority that is the most obedient and and they won't stir trouble or they won't you know they they won't question the status quo and they won't question white supremacy because in in a way white supremacy seems to be adjacent like you said to to 
you know, this model minority myth and, and Asian America. And um, you, you quote Jenny Zhang and, 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 um, and I, I think that it's, it's, it's true that, that as Asian Americans, we need to start seeing the model minority myth as, as a myth, right? Because mm-hmm. it is a myth mm-hmm. um, that we cannot, we cannot really be free in, 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 within the confines of white supremacy. Um, and, and we are not exempt from white supremacy either. So, so, so I think, I think as Asian Americans, we have to be, we have to make sure to kind of align ourselves with what is more progressive. Um, so, so that could mean, that could mean aligning ourselves more with black Americans and also, and also kind of the struggle for racial equality, but, but across all minorities, like, 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 like you said, like indigenous rights and like black American rights and, and, and the, and the reality of the situation is that Asian American studies and Asian American movement wouldn't exist without, you know, with, without black civil rights movements in America. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that I am always aware of. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and so I always align myself with that um, rather than kind mm-hmm. of this white status quo. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, and also earlier today, you talked about um, teaching like an Asian American studies course um, um, and then the, the process of preparing for that um, from like never taking that sort of class in college as an undergrad. So I was wondering how you prepared to teach that class and um, what kind of class you aim to teach or have taught. Yeah, thank you. I. So initially, I wanted to just teach, you know, an Asian American literature class. So I, I prepared a bunch of texts, right? So, so some fiction writers and some poets. And then I quickly realized that in order to, to teach an Asian American literature class, I also have to read up on Asian American history. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the first books I taught was Monstrous, this book of short stories by Lizzie Tenorio. And... Um, that, that book includes like, like there was a story about the I hotel, the international hotel in San Francisco, which is a big part of, you know, the Asian American movement and Asian American studies, um, history in general. So I, I definitely read up on, uh, on a lot of, um, Asian American studies. I read Helen Zia. I read a bunch of, you know, I, I, I read I read enough text to kind of introduce myself to it and then and then and then I tried to introduce that to my students but I kind of quickly learned that it's very hard to teach these subjects when when you haven't had exposure to that that set of tools right that mm-hmm. set of tools for critical thinking and so even you know my, like some of my students didn't feel prepared to talk about those issues or to talk about kind of representation and to talk about history. So, so, um, so, so as the class progressed, as I, as I taught more semesters of, of this class, I, I incorporated, you know, I incorporated discussions about, you know, why learn this history, you know, just really basic topics, like why learn this history? Why, 
learn critical thinking skills like why is that important mm -hmm. you know so that so that I don't get the same kind of pushback that I did maybe the first time I taught it um, because believe it or not I had a lot of pushback from my Asian American students who you know who didn't think that it mattered if you know if, if, if there was a stereotype that was depicted in a music video mm -hmm. um, so I really I really wanted to kind of take a step back and understand the value and importance of of critical thinking uh, of of being kind of of being of having agency having the agency to respond critically to things that already exist mm -hmm. so you said that um, mm -hmm. there's a student who didn't think that um, it mattered that Asian Americans or Asians were portrayed in a certain light in the music video um, but I was also wondering like um, is it crucial to think that it matters to learn more wholly Asian American or Asian history? I think it is. I mm -hmm. think I think I think there is there is absolutely there there is value to knowing more, right, about mm -hmm. about a history, especially if it's a history of 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 a demographic that you belong to, right? So, mm -hmm. so for me, you know, learning about Asian American history didn't, you know, didn't happen until until I was a graduate student, right? And and that that to me means that means that I I want to make as many opportunities as possible, right? For 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 young Asian Americans to to learn about this stuff because sometimes you know you can go through your whole life and not know that the first Chinese woman was was a, essentially a zoo object right <laughs> um, and you can go through your whole life not knowing this and and how does that change your perspective when once you once you learn this um, what does that do to your you know your your sense of responsibility to um to your activism right mm -hmm. um so so for me i think it's always better to know mm -hmm. um and it's always better to learn but but the thing is you have to you have to be open to it right mm -hmm. um so 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 for me when i when i received some pushback i had to kind of i had to kind of I had to kind of evaluate, you know, what are some methods to to get them to care, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, you know, I like I, I that this is still an ongoing learning process for me, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, for me as as well as my students mm -hmm. and as well as you know the 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 scholars and the writers that I look up to, mm -hmm. right? So so just because someone chooses not to learn doesn't mean that they might they might not be impacted by these realities at some point in their lives right mm -hmm. yeah thank you um i was also wondering if to like close this close mm -hmm. this episode if you could share um like some of your favorite <laughs> music or books yeah oh thank you yeah yeah um so music or books um since we've been talking so much about like Asian America <laughs> um 
I guess that's on my mind. Like books I've been reading. Uh, I, I, I just read Ocean Vuong's newest novel. It's not coming out until June, but that was like a really incredible um, novel. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's a poet, but he, he, he has a debut novel coming out. Um, and then I've, I'm, I'm reading tomorrow in L.A. with Muriel Lunn, who's an amazing poet. Um, she has a book that came out in 2016 called Bone Confetti. Um, and music-wise, you know, like Mitski. I love Mitski. <laughs> you're, you're, you're nodding. Yeah, Mitski, uh, Japanese Breakfast, whom I, I, I saw her live once, and it, it was really incredible. She, she has a real, like, stage presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think all of these people are, are, are really, you know, if you think about all the stereotypes that we, that we, that we, that have been, you know, um, uh, if you think about all the stereotypes that have been ascribed to Asian Americans, especially women, femme, and queer Asian Americans, like, like, like these are all examples of, of, of artists who, who really, really not just dispel the myths or or the stereotypes but but really give us like this really full and human picture Mm -hmm. of 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 this of asian american identity so um yeah i appreciate your questions do you have a particular song um by any of by japanese breakfast or mitsuki oh yeah i think exemplifies that um i really like the song a burning hill by Mitski, um, and and in her newest album, Nobody is a pretty good song. And um, Japanese Breakfast, uh, like her 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 new album, the Diving Woman song is also is really is really mesmerizing. So, yeah, I recommend that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sally. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, this is Ruji for the Student Life. It was an absolute delight to interview Sally Wynn now. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you tune in to our next episode.